Okay, this is recording, so we will go ahead and begin. Now, as you probably know, the chapter title, excuse me, seems like I always have a little bit of a time getting started here, making sure my lungs are clear for some reason these days. But as you probably, probably know, the uh, chapter has to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as you see, the title that I have here on the overhead or on the uh, PowerPoint presentation is Holy Spirit and Pentecost. Well, those are essentially the same thing as you will see as we go through this. So that's why the, uh, the title here. What I want to do this morning is ask the question, the big question, what is Pentecost? Let's see, hopefully that, we might need to adjust that, I don't know, we'll see. So the question that we want to ask then is, what is Pentecost? Thank you, Jason. Wrong way. Wrong way. <laughs> then I went and did that. That's So the big question that we're asking here is what is Pentecost? Or you could say, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And the answer that we are going to uh, see here is Pentecost is God's fulfilling his promise to send the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is God's fulfilling his promise to send the Holy Spirit. What we will begin to do this morning is a survey of the biblical data, and in particular, as we talk about the promise, and eventually we're going to talk about the fulfillment of that promise, but as we talk about the promise itself, we're going to be looking at, a, at the Old Testament and uh, the Gospels in particular. That's where the promise is highlighted. So as we look at the scriptural data regarding the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, that's where the focus will be. The Old Testament and the Gospels. The fulfillment will then focus in on Acts and the, um, the Epistles. But let's look, first of all, and what we're going to do is just do a survey of biblical texts. So I hope you have your Bibles with you and ready. We're just going to go through a number of passages that deal with the fact that the Scriptures... <coughs> and the Lord himself promises, predicts, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The promise is a future promise according to Joel, and I would ask you to open your Bibles to Joel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. <clears throat> open your Bibles to Joel, Chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading at verse 28. Now, you are probably reading from the, the ESV. How many of you here have ESVs? Anybody here have the New American Standard Bible? Yeah. Okay, well, not quite half and half. So I, I typically use a New American Standard Bible, um, but uh, maybe this morning I'll go ahead and 
at this point anyway, quote from, uh, from Joel from the ESV. <coughs> so Joel in the ESV says this, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. <clears throat> your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass, notice verse 32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, look with me then uh, at some of the features of this particular promise from the Old Testament. First of all, <clears throat> the promise um, is future. Notice it says in verse 30, 28, it will come to pass, it will come about after this or afterward as the ESV says that I will pour out my spirit. He has not poured out his spirit yet when Joel is writing. There's going to come a time when he will. So there's a future element to this, but the promise is also multinational and without distinction. Notice what he says there, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, all mankind. Now this is a promise in the book of Joel in the Old Testament centuries before it occurred. So it's multinational, all mankind. There's no restriction to the Jews, to Israel. And it's without distinction. Notice it's your sons and your daughters, your old men, your young men, your male and the female, servants, and of course the implication is those who are non-servants. So what's going to happen is when this, when this occurs, when this event occurs that, that Joel is prophesying, <clears throat> it's, going to come, it's going to come upon all nations and it's going to come without distinction. Doesn't matter what social status you're in. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter whether you uh, uh, are a son or a daughter, a male or female. Any of those distinctions that we have <clears throat> don't matter when it comes to the pouring out of the Spirit. <clears throat> Thirdly, the promise is redemptive in focus. Does, does the passage there that we, I mentioned um, you to take, pay attention to, verse 32, and it shall come, up, come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Does that ring a bell with anybody? That sound like something? Romans, yeah. Romans almost 10:13. Romans 10:13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul is quoting Joel in Romans 10:13, and when he does so, he's he's saying that those who call upon the name of the Lord, whether Jew or Gentile, they will be saved. So there's this redemptive focus in this promise. It's going to be poured out upon all flesh all mankind, and it's going to happen in a day when everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. <clears throat> so this is an early promise for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at another passage. 
There are several of them that include this same promise here that's with John the Baptist. I'm gonna only, uh, we're gonna only look at one of them, that is a passage in Luke. <clears throat> but the other passages, like in Matthew and Mark and in John, essentially say the same thing. Some of them are a little bit briefer, but if you will, turn in your Bibles then to Matthew chapter three, or I mean to uh, Luke chapter three, or you can just look at the passages we have it on the board there. And I'm gonna <clears throat> ask somebody to, um, Dave Owens, would you read that? that uh, you can just read it right from the, the board there, if you will. John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water. The one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the fall of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, so look, look at this promise. Here is Luke, the writer Luke, and he uh, is recording what John the Baptist says with, regarding Jesus. Um, and he says, okay, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's somebody else who's coming. And you know that John was, his mission was to prepare the way for Christ, for the Messiah. He says, the one coming after me who's mightier than I am, what's he going to do? What is this Messiah going to do? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, there, this, I think, is a significant statement because it's recorded in all the Gospels. So every one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all found it important to record this statement. It is, it is a significant statement. But the, the statement itself is something that I want you to pay attention to, and that is it's what I'm going to call the breadth of its statement, of the statement. I think it characterizes the whole of Jesus' ministry. You know, there are many statements that are summary statements, and they kind of characterize the whole of something, <clears throat> such as Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus had to suffer and then enter into his glory. Those are two broad themes, the suffering of Christ and then the entering into his glory. Two broad themes that, in a sense, encompass all of the, of the um, ministry of Christ. And so likewise, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, I believe, is one of those kinds of statements. Baptizing you with the Holy Spirit indicates the blessing that is going to come from the Messiah as he uh, goes about his ministry. And then the, the baptizing you with fire, I believe, has to do with judgment. And that's what he's talking about. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's going to uh, you know, gather the, 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 um, the chaff and, and burn it up. I think he's talking about judgment there. So here are two major aspects <clears throat> in the life of the Messiah. He is going to come in blessing, and that blessing can be characterized as baptizing you with the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. <clears throat> if you want to pick out some phrase to characterize the blessing that is coming from the ministry of the Messiah, what phrase might you select? He is going to be the one who justifies the elect. Well, we could probably do that. <clears throat> uh, he is going to be the one who, who dies for your sins. Yeah, we could do that, but notice what John the Baptist says. 
Very interesting, I think. He is going to be the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. Imagine that. You know, justification is God's declaring us righteous. That's a, that's a great blessing. Adoption is a great blessing. Here he adopts you into his family. Regeneration is a great blessing. He gives you life. But think about the fact that, and I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, but I want you to think about the fact that he is going to baptize his, his people with the Holy Spirit. That is God is going to dwell right within you. Can you imagine a greater blessing? Not just in his family, but he is in you. He baptizes you. And so that is what John uses to come up with a, a summary phrase for the ministry of the Messiah. <clears throat> he is going to be one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John chapter 7, here's another great passage. <clears throat> um, let me uh, ask another person. I'm just going to kind of randomly pick some people here if you don't mind. Joe, uh, would, you, would, would you read this passage up here, John 7? Now the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, now here's a significant statement with regard to the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as uh, John called it. What, what does, um, what is that little phrase that I have there at the bottom, highlighted in yellow, what, what does that tell you? Not yet given. Future. Yes, it's future. It was future in Joel's day, but it is future now. Well, I say now, I mean, in John, when John is speaking, when John is speaking, he says, the spirit, or he's talking about when Jesus is coming, he says the spirit was not yet given. John was speaking after he was given, but of course, he's talking about the time when he had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's this future aspect, but also notice <clears throat> it's historical. There's a day in which he had not been given and the implication here is that there's a day when he will be given. So there's a historical aspect to this. It is not, we're not talking about what theologians would call um, ordo salutis, although that ties in, ordo salutis meaning the order of salvation or that which has to do with your experience. We're talking about historia salutis, that is the history of salvation, the history of redemption. We're speaking historically now. The Spirit had not yet been given historically. There's also a personal aspect to this. Do you see anything that indicates something personal in what John is saying here? What do you see? Okay, yes. Those who believe, those who believe in him. There's this personal aspect in the giving of the spirit. There would come a time when those who believe in Jesus would receive the spirit. Now there, 
we have to do with your experience, but he has to be given first. Thus the Spirit would indwell believers in their innermost being, too. There's this personal aspect of dwelling within us. And then there's also the redemptive aspect. That is, in the giving of the Spirit, the Spirit is likened to living water which quenches the thirst of the soul. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What kind of rest is he talking about? I will give you rest for your souls. Not giving you physical rest like, you know, you labor hard out in the garden or whatever, and uh, he gives you physical rest. He's not talking about that kind of rest. He's talking about rest for your souls. Those, those souls that labored to please God and cannot please God because we can never labor and work hard enough to please him. And so Jesus has come to me and I will give you rest for your souls because I will give you my righteousness. Well, that's like, it's that kind of soul rest that we're talking about here. And so he gives the Holy Spirit and, and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us and from our innermost being flow rivers of living water. He quenches our thirst, the thirst of our souls. And that was just... Not just a glass of water, but with a river. You can't drink fully from a river. There's more there than you can drink of. Look at the abundance of the blessing that comes from Christ. Rivers of living water come. And what is that? That's a metaphor for the Holy Spirit who's going to dwell within every believer. So there's this redemptive aspect that he comes and he quenches the thirst of our souls for everyone who believes in him. Let us go on, John chapter 14. And uh, let's see, Martha, would you read for me that passage? I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you because I will come to you. Okay, here is another promise that Jesus gave shortly before he's to be crucified. And we're just, again, we're doing a brief blitz kind of survey of these passages. But look at this in John chapter 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The word another is another of the same kind. I know that the two Greek words that have to that can be translated another, there's not a hard and fast distinction between the two of them. But this, there is a, a general trend, you might say. And the term that is used here for another is, means another of the same kind, not another of a different kind. And so he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. I have been among you. I have been your helper. But I'm going to ask the Father and he is going to give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And who is this helper? Well, Jesus identifies him as the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And notice what he says. And he's going to give this other helper the world can't receive him because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you. He abides with you and will be in you. He is going to be in us, he says. 
And then he says it's amazing, he jumps to another statement real quickly. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. How does he come? He just got through telling us. He's coming to us through the Holy Spirit. The Father gives him. Let's look at this next passage. Well, I need to uh, put both of those up there. Um, Okay, let's see. Tim, would you read those two passages for me? Tim. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also. Notice these two statements regarding, again, uh, it's in John, John 14, and in the very next chapter, John 15, basically the same uh, discourse, you might say, there from John, when Jesus is talking with his disciples shortly before his crucifixion. Well, what do you notice here? There's a couple of things that are just a little bit different in the way that he states this in 14.26 and then 15.26. Notice anything that's a little different? The Father sends and he will send. Okay, yes. Look at that. Isn't that interesting? In 14.26, same thing as he said earlier in chapter 14, the helper of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send but he sends him in Jesus' name. Father will send him in my name. 1526 says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. Now, I was thinking about this. If I, uh, when, when my kids were living at home, if I would uh, said, have said to Susanna one day, Susanna, um, Shannon has been helping me a lot here. She's kind of hot, and um, I'd like to just give her a popsicle. Would you uh, please go to the freezer there, get a popsicle and give it to Shannon, kind of as a little reward for how well she's been helping me today. And so Susanna goes and she gets popsicle out of the freezer and she gives it to Shannon. And uh, so who, who gave Shannon the popsicle? Well, you say, Susanna did. Well, was it Susanna? Or was it me? Well, it was I gave it to Suzette, to Shannon through Susanna. And that's the same thing that's going on here. The whole, and you remember from the past um, illustration that I gave to you. You can bring this with you each time if you want. I don't know. Remember I gave you this? <clears throat> and it has redemption planned, accomplished, and applied. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes it, the Spirit applies it. It's the same basic pattern here, where we have the Father who plans the giving of the Spirit. <clears throat> the Father is a source. He is going to give the Spirit, but he accomplishes that through Christ. And that's what's happening. And so we see that the, the helper is going to be given through Christ. But also notice in the second passage there, 1526, what's going to happen when this helper comes. 
He will bear witness of me. The Spirit is going to bear witness of Christ. But then, notice what else happens. It's not just the Spirit. How does the Spirit bear witness? And you will bear witness also. So the, this is, hasn't happened yet. This is historically future at this point. But Jesus, God the Father through Jesus is going to give the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness of Christ, but it's going to bear, bear witness of Christ in a, such a way that the disciples are bearing witness of Christ. And we will see this fleshed out shortly. What about the next passage here? John chapter 16. Um, let's see. Carla, would you read this passage for us, please? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay. So here's just another passage indicating that it is it is a great advantage for us to have the Holy Spirit come to be given. And um, again, who is the one giving? Well, in this instance, it is Jesus who says, I will send him to you. Another significant passage here is in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 49. The context of this, who remembers the context of the last chapter of Luke? Anybody? Jesus encounters two on the road to Emmaus. He is raised from the dead. And then at the end of chapter 24, he, in, he goes to the, all the disciples and he appears to the disciples. And he gives them a commission. He, gives, he tells them what it is that they're going to be doing. Now they didn't really realize until they, they began to, the, the lights are going on at this point as to why he had to die. They hadn't realized that in its fullness until later on. And so Jesus, it, so Luke records this. And let's see, I'll get somebody else to read that for me. Justin, would you mind reading that for us? Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. All right. So look at this passage here. This is Luke recording, and Luke says that Jesus, when he encountered the disciples, just after his resurrection, gives them this charge. He gives them this task. They're to go, and, they're to, and his name is to be proclaimed. Forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to all the nations. We, did we encounter that concept before? All the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, he tells them where they're going to start. But eventually it's to go out to all the nations. And then, you are witnesses. And he says, Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Well, who's the promise of his Father? And then when this happens, and, and, and they're to stay in the city until they are clothed with power from on high. So here's the task of the disciples, to witness of Christ. The scope of the task, to witness to all the nations. And the power for the task comes from on, from on high, 
So what is the promise? Now, he doesn't really identify in this particular passage. Luke doesn't. He doesn't identify what the promise is. What is the promise of the Father? What does being clothed from power on high mean? Well, we can easily see that if we will compare. We're going to compare this with Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. And uh, before we actually read verses 4 and 5, open your Bibles then to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to read the earlier part. Now remember, Luke is the one who wrote Acts. It's sort of like the work of the Messiah, volume 1, work of the Messiah, volume 2. It's almost like going from one chapter to the other when you read Luke 24 and then move to Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> so Luke, he ends chapter, he, he ends his gospel, the gospel of Luke, with the passage that we just read. And then he begins the book of Acts with the passage that we're about to read now. Notice what he says here. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The Gospels record what Jesus began to do and teach, Acts, what he continues to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after, after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And now comes the passage that we have uh, before us. Jim, would you read that? Jim Macriso, would you read that, please? Sure. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Boy, that language sounds very similar, doesn't it? Not, does it not, to what Luke had already said in the end of, of his gospel? Well, let's go ahead and compare the two, actually. What is it he says in Luke chapter 24, that the, this, uh, this message is to be proclaimed to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witness of these things, he says. In Acts, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In Luke, he says, you are to stay in the city. In Acts, he says, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. That's the city. In Luke, he said, I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you. He didn't identify who the promise was in Luke. <clears throat> in Acts, he says, wait for the promise of the father, which you heard from me. Well, we've already read a number of passages about those statements of Jesus where they heard it from him. <clears throat> the promise of the father. In Luke, he says, stay until you are clothed with, with power from on high. And how is that going to happen? In Acts, he gives us more detail. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so we have this comparison. You see how basically Luke is picking up in Acts where he left off in Luke. Saying the same thing. He says, okay, I, I ended with this promise that the Spirit is going to come. And he begins the book of Acts with the promise that the Spirit is going to come. So I want you to consider this situation. So far, from what all we've 
read, the Spirit has not been given yet. Everything we've read so far has been in the category of promise, not in the category of fulfillment. <clears throat> and so far, what happens is Jesus is gone. Now, I want you to imagine, if you will, for just a moment, what it might have been like. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called um, Screwtape Letters, and uh, there's this dialogue between these, these demons. It's like a senior demon and a junior demon or something like that. And I want you to kind of imagine, if you will, some sort of a dialogue going on. <clears throat> imagine this senior demon and junior demon, and uh, this junior demon is saying, well, you know, we're kind of, we're in a bad way here. Jesus has been raised from the dead now. And the, and the senior demon says, nah, don't worry about it. No big deal. Just think how weak those disciples are. Always doubting never getting what Jesus told them. He told them he's going to be raised from the dead. They didn't, ever, they, didn't, they didn't even get it. Even after he was crucified, they went back. Peter's going to go back fishing. He was giving up. Remember how Peter was so weak that, that he denied Jesus before a little servant girl. And that's right in sight of Jesus himself. Jesus, he could look across the way and see Jesus. And he still flees and cowers before this little servant girl. And then you remember how even before Jesus ascended into heaven and he met them in Galilee, they came and he met them, the resurrected Christ, yes. You remember how it said that they worshipped him, but it says that some doubted? Right in the presence of the resurrected Jesus and they're still doubting? Jesus has gone to heaven now. He's out of their sight. They couldn't even be faithful to him. All the disciples fled. They couldn't even be faithful to him when he was there. No worry, no sweat. He's gone. And a week goes by. And they're all in the upper room, as Acts records. Nothing happens. Another week goes by, nothing happens. Another week goes by, three weeks, nothing happens. And the demons are no doubt gloating, saying, ha, look, they're not going out and doing what Jesus said. Jesus said to be witnesses to me in all the world. All they're doing is cowering up in this upper room. Five weeks go by, 38 days go by. They're still up there. Nothing happening. But on the 39th day, the day of the Jewish feast called Pentecost, something happens that changes not just the disciples, but changes the world. Jesus' promise, the Father's promise, is fulfilled. And Pentecost happens. And here's what Peter, in reflecting back on it, immediately after it happens, says about it. 
He's reflecting back on Pentecost, and we're going to look at Pentecost in just a moment, but he's reflecting back on here. The exalted Christ has received and he's the Spirit, and he sends the Holy, promised Holy Spirit. And Peter says, before all the, the Jewish people, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Does the word witnesses ring a bell? <clears throat> Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus had been resurrected, he had ascended into heaven, and now he's exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the promise, the, the, the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Father gives to the Son the promised Holy Spirit. Having done that, having received the promised Holy Spirit, then he, the exalted Christ, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The exalted Christ pours out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's what's happening, and that's what Peter is describing. He had been exalted to the right hand of God. He's the king. He's received the promise from the Holy Spirit. He has received his reward. He has accomplished his work, and the Father has received, has given him his reward. And he as the authoritative king, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. He, as the authoritative king now, pours out his spirit. Jesus, didn't he tell the disciples, I will build my church. And how is he going to do it? How is he going to see that these cowering disciples effectively accomplish this task that, that he gave them to do? This is how he's going to do it. He pours out his spirit upon his people, upon his disciples, and they go out to accomplish the mission that he has given to them. And that is Act 2. That is Acts 2. The events were dramatic. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all, to, well, maybe I'll read from the, the ESV so it'll match your version. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as if as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout Jews, Jews, Jerusalem Jews, devout, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Can you, that, that is a dramatic event. Think about that. The events of this were staging for the, the message going out to all nations, but imagine what it would have been like for you to be there in that city, and all of a sudden you hear this sound, like a mighty rushing wind, like, like a hurricane or a tornado. I, I've never been in a tornado, but I'm sure some of, maybe some of you, has anybody here been in, in a tornado? Have been a tornado? But we hear that people describe, it's like a train or something, you know, it's like a, it's loud. And you can imagine that all of a sudden, if we were sit here in this, this building right now, and all of a sudden we heard this great, mighty sound, sound like it's coming out from the parking lot. It's like, a, like a, there's a tornado going on out there. 
Well, we'd want to go see what's going on, wouldn't we? And that's what it was like. They rushed out. They wanted to see what's happening. And when they, when they went out there, they heard these men, these women speaking in other languages, the language of their, their, their native languages, because they were men from all over the place. Now, the, the promise had been given already in, in Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give the nations to your inheritance. This is setting the stage for the reaching of the nations, by the way, because they were those from every nation. And we'll see, see how this was in just a moment. And remember that Jesus came, he was slain and he purchased for God from, with his blood men from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And here's a little sketch of where they were coming from. You can see that all... They're in Jerusalem now, but all these, these areas that are mentioned there in Acts chapter 2, we, you kind of see where they all are from. These are devout Jews who are getting, hearing this and hearing them speak, and they, they spoke the language of these other areas. Of course, they, they may have spoken Hebrew too. But do you see how what's happening here is... The message is going out to the Jews and the, these Jews who live in these different areas are going to be carrying this message out to all the nations. And so there's this preparation for all the nations receiving the message of the gospel. And the tongue speaking that occurred here was a sign of the Spirit's coming. That's why the tongue speaking, it was a sign of the fact that the Spirit had been given. And so when they hear the word of God spoken in their own language, they know that something very, very unusual, something unique, something that has never happened before occurred. <clears throat> and the events were fulfilling Joel's prophecy. That's what Peter says. He says, they, they say, oh, these guys are drunk. That didn't make much sense, does it? But sounds like some modern day politicians, doesn't it? Oh, these guys, they, they're just drunk, talking about the mighty acts of God in my own language, language they never learned. Yeah, they're just drunk. Well, Peter says, no, no. This is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, and he quotes it in full in Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> and these events are part of the, the redemptive accomplishment of Christ. It is Christ who is pouring them out as the exalted Messiah King. He is, a, is going to see that he is going to do what he said that he was going to do. The events are part of his redemptive accomplishment. He pours out the Spirit in order that he build his church. And so what we conclude from all of this, there's a number of conclusions that we can come from, we can, we can come to. First of all, Pentecost is a once for all non-repeatable event. It is the giving of the Holy Spirit who comes as the other helper to carry on the work of Jesus Christ. Christ is going to build his church. He's going to build it through the Spirit. 
of God. I want to highlight that. It's once for all, non-repeatable. There are factions um, in Christendom today that will talk about, oh, we all need to have our own Pentecost. No. Pentecost is a once for all, non-repeatable historical event, like the crucifixion. Jesus is not to be crucified over and over again like the Roman Catholic Church would have, have us um, believe. And Pentecost is not to be repeated over and over again as there are some who would have us believe. These are once for all, non-repeatable, redemptive historical events. In the Gospels, Jesus is personally present carrying on his work. In Acts and the Epistles, he is present, but he's present through the Holy Spirit. He does not leave us as orphans. He sends a helper to be with us. <clears throat> but the question might come to you, what about the other times in the book of Acts where it says that the Holy Spirit is given? Anybody wonder about that? You know, there are other places where it says the Spirit was given. What about those occasions? Well, um, here, here's the answer to that. The one giving of the Spirit took place in stages, each of which has great one-time significance in the history of redemption. All right, I'll say that again, just so you'll... The one giving of the Spirit took place in stages. Each of those stages has great one-time significance in the history of redemption. And I'll explain but let me first of all illustrate. Imagine that you're an electrician and you have a, a contract to, to um, provide electricity for a four-story building. And you go uh, to the building and you wire it and you run all the wires and you run the wires for the first floor, you run them for the second floor, you run them for the third floor, you run them for the fourth floor, and you get it all wired up and ready to go. And the time comes for you to, uh, to turn the electricity on and see if all your wiring worked. Now this probably is not exactly the way an electrician would do it, but I think you'll get the illustration. <laughs> so, you're gonna, you're gonna, so you flip the first switch and first, first floor lights go on, everything looks good, all lit up, power works, first floor is good. Flip the next switch, second floor, test that, lights on, power's good. Third floor, everything's good. Fourth floor, Everything's good. Power to the whole building. Well, it's kind of like that. You wired up the whole building. You're, you're providing electricity for the whole building, but it takes place in stages. The, kind of the, the, the giving of the electricity to each of those floors took place in stages. And that's kind of what happens. The giving of the spirit is a one giving of the spirit, just like it's a one a wiring of that building. But the one giving of the spirit takes place in stages, and let's see what those stages are. <clears throat> First of all, Acts chapter 2, we've already read about that. There is the giving of the Spirit, and it takes place in Jerusalem, and the Spirit is given to Jews. Yet even here, there's a preparation for going out to all the nations, as we've already seen. But the, the giving of the Spirit is given to Jews, Israelites, which was evidenced by their speaking in tongues. That's stage one. Stage two 
is in Acts chapter 8. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8 real quickly. Here we see the Spirit being given to none, to half Jews, half Jews. In Acts chapter 8, verses 14 and following, it says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, this is Samaria, Samaritans, the Jews hated the Samaritans because they were what they called half-breeds, half-Jews. But the gospel went there too. Remember, the gospel is going to go out to all nations, to all mankind, and they received the word of God. And so they sent Peter and John, two top-head apostles, And they came down and prayed with them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And so here we see, here is stage two. Half Jews receiving the Holy Spirit with the laying on of the hands of the apostles. Then, stage three. Here is Cornelius. Turn to Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, verses 44 and following, we read this. You remember that Peter didn't even want to go there because here's a Gentile. He's not a a Jew at all. Peter considers Gentiles unclean, but he gets a vision and says, you've got to eat. Eat, Peter, and you remember that vision. So he sent down to Cornelius, who is a Gentile, in verse 43, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, including including Gentiles. And how was this going to be demonstrated to those people in that day? While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message, and all the circumcised believers, that is the Jews, all the Jews who had come with Peter were amazed. What, what, What was it that amazed them? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. What? You mean this message, this salvation, is going out to Gentiles as well? If they can receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out upon them? You mean actually what Joel said? This is going to be poured out upon all mankind is going to actually happen? Amazing. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for those to be baptized. And by the way, baptism, water baptism occurs after, in this instance, or in the previous instance, it had occurred before, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Surely no one can refuse water. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they asked them to stay on for a few days. And so we see Jews in Jerusalem. Then the gospel is going to go out to Jerusalem, Samaria, and Judea. Samaritans received the gospel, and that is evidenced by their receiving the Holy Spirit at the laying on of the hands of the apostles in Acts 8. And then non-Jews receive the Holy Spirit um, altogether, Gentiles do. And then finally, there are transitional saints, that is, those who were saints under the Old Testament, as it were, and now they are transitioning into the New Testament era. We're talking historically here, okay? So you're a saint. You, you, you believe in the Lord <clears throat> under the Old Testament structure. Jesus died and is buried and is resurrected and Pentecost occurs. And so there's this historical transition from Old Testament to New Testament, as it were. And what about those saints? They were John's disciples. Look with me at Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, 
verses 1 through 7. We don't have time to read this whole section. But here's, uh, it says, And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, uh, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. See, they're far away. They're in Ephesus, miles from Jerusalem, and they didn't have texting in those days. <clears throat> and he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Okay, so here are disciples of John. They're baptized by John. And, says, and so he says, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. Oh, okay, so here are these Old Testament saints. Oh, okay, that's, that's what John said. Verse 5, and when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, they had been baptized in, with John's baptism, which was not Christian baptism. And now as they transition into the Christian era, they're baptized with Christian, by uh, the disciples with Christian baptism. And then Paul laid his hands upon them and the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. And so we see this fourth stage. This is complete near the end of the book of Acts. Not the very end, but toward the end of the book of Acts. We see Jews, Acts 2. <clears throat> we see the half-Jews, Acts 8. We see non-Jews, Acts 10. And now we see the transitional states, Acts 19. <clears throat> and that is what's happening here. There's the one giving of the Spirit historically, but it takes place in these stages so that the people at that period of time would understand that the gospel is going out, the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon all mankind without regard to the nation, and without regard to any distinction. And that's what's happening here in the book of Acts with regard to the baptism of the Spirit. And so, when it comes to New Testament saints now, the two stages become one stage. The two stages become one stage. Now, by two stages, I mean this. The two-stage experience of those believers, they, they first believed and then they received the Spirit. The two stages of the very early and transitional believers now become one stage in the experience of believing, and should have been a parenthesis there before the word believe, become a one-stage experience, you believe and you receive, bad spelling there too, in later believers. So what was two stages at the transitional period of history now becomes one stage because the transition is over. Hope that makes sense to you. That's because the giving of the, of the Holy Spirit historically is done and it's over. He's been given historically. Now, what Jesus said in, in John chapter 7 where, the, where it says the Holy Spirit had not yet been given, we don't say that anymore. Now we say the Holy Spirit has been given. It's done. It's over. It's history. Now there is only the giving of the Spirit experientially. Initially, the experiential proved the historical. 
And that's why the speaking of tongues, the speaking in tongues there was to prove the historical giving of the Spirit. And so now everyone who believes in Jesus receives the Spirit. And so receiving the Spirit is tied to faith. It was always tied to faith, even from the beginning. But the two stages aspect is over. And if we had time, which we don't, we would go through and we would look at all the passages where it talks about those who are New Testament saints receiving the Holy Spirit. But you can look in, in, in Galatians where it says that we who believe have received the promise of Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is who dwells within every one of you. He is the one who gives you the assurance that your sins are forgiven. There, there's a difference now in you that, that didn't exist before your sins were forgiven. You have, an, a, you have that internal witness. The Holy Spirit bears witness within your spirit. Yes, there are times that you have doubts. I know that. I have doubts. There are times when I go back and say, Lord, I'm, I'm still coming. I'm still trusting you. You're still my only hope. I still, and I, and I kind of, as it were, renew. But, I, but the Holy Spirit is still within me. And he dwells with them and he tells me, I am his child. He causes me to call out, Abba, Father. He assures me that my sins are forgiven and that's what exists in you because the Spirit of God has been given and He's given to everyone who belongs to Him. And He is the one who now as we go to worship will enable you to worship in spirit and in truth. And He is the one who was <clears throat> by the, by the, uh, the giving of, of the exalted Christ is building the church of Christ in this day and age. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for sending the Spirit. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, but you have come and you are in our midst through your Spirit who dwells within us. May we now worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.